Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. And may we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Reshit 31. Then he heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken all that belongs to our father, and from that which belonged to our father he amassed all his wealth. Jacob also noticed Laban's disposition, that behold, it was not towards him as in earlier days. And Adonai said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your native land, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and summoned Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock. And he said to them, I have noticed that your father's disposition is not towards me as in earlier days, but the God of my father was with me. Now you know that it was with all my might that I served your father, yet your father mocked me and changed my wage a hundred times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he would... Stipulate, speckled ones shall be your wages. Then the entire flock bore speckled ones. And if he would stipulate, ring ones shall be your wages. Then the entire flock bore ring ones. Thus God took away your father's livestock and gave them to me. It once happened at the mating time of the flock that I raised my eyes and saw in a dream, Behold, the he-goats that mounted the flock were ringed, speckled, and checkered. And an angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, raise your eyes, if you please, and see that all the he-goats mounting the flocks are ring speckled and checkered, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you, where you anointed a pillar and where you made me a vow. Now arise, leave this land, and return to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied and said to him, have we then still a share and inheritance in our father's house? Are we not considered by him as strangers? For see, he has sold us and even totally consumed our money. But all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. So now, whatever God has said to you, do. Jacob arose and lifted his eyes and his wives, on, lift, uh, arose and lifted his children, rather, and his wives onto the camels. He led away all his livestock and all the wealth which he had amassed, his purchased property which he had amassed in Padamaran, to go to his father Isaac. To the land of Canaan. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole the teraphim that belonged to her father. Jacob deceived Laban the Armenian by not telling him that he was fleeing. Thus he fled with all he had. He arose and crossed the river, and he set his direction towards Mount Gilead. It was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, so he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days catching up with him on Mount Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Arminian in a dream by night and said to him, Beware lest you speak with Jacob, either good or bad. Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent on the mountain while Laban had stationed his kinsmen on Mount Gilead. By the way, just as a pause for a moment, it says that God warned Laban not to say anything good or bad to Jacob. Why did he say good or bad? It would make sense for him to say good things. So why did Hashem say to him, don't say anything good to him or don't say anything bad to him? And the commentators bring down 
that he wanted to destroy Jacob, but not by the power of the sword. He wanted to destroy Jacob by the power of his mouth, by the power of sorcery. Sometimes people curse us, and then sometimes they bless us, but the blessing is a curse in reality. So God said, listen, don't say, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> don't say anything good to him. Don't say anything bad to him. Just don't say anything to him because I've already letting you know that your power to commit sorcery against Jacob, I'm already here to nullify it. So it goes on to say, Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent on the mountain while Laban had stationed his kinsman on Mount Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have deceived me and led my daughters away like captives of the sword? Why have you fled so stealthily and cheated me? It's the cheater saying this, right? Nor did you tell, tell me, for I have sent you off with gladness, with songs, with timbrel, with lyre. If, he's saying, if you had told me this, I would have had a big party and sent you on your way. Yeah, right. And you did not even allow me to kiss my sons and daughters. Now you have acted foolishly. By the way, just, just an aside, just a little, a little point in life. A lot of people who will, will try to do this to you in life, they'll make you feel guilty. You know, in this case, a righteous Jacob is fleeing a very wicked Laban. And Laban says, man, why'd you do this to me? If you'd have done this to me, I would have had a big party for you. And it's not. If you were a man of God, you'd have, you'd have, you wouldn't have done this to me. People try to guilt you into doing things. You know, if you really cared about me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to me that way. If you really cared about me, you wouldn't, you, you, would, you would eat what I put before you and those kind of things. They try to use, don't, don't you love God? Don't you love people? And uh, Jacob loved Laban so much, he fled in the night. <laughs> it is in my power to do you, it is in my power to do you all harm, but the God of your father addressed me last night saying, beware of speaking with Jacob, either good or bad. That's the height of arrogance, by the way, because he said, listen, my power to do you harm, but God told me not to. So then, then, so then it's not in your power, is it? I'm telling you right now, if you'll use logic in your life, it'll work. Because we, we say things and we're not even truthful with ourselves. This is my power to harm you, but God told me, he said, no, wait a minute. If it's in your power, then how can God stop you? So it's not in your power, is it? Now you have left because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought perhaps you might steal your daughters from me. With whomever you find your gods, he shall not live in the presence of your kinsmen, a certain for yourself what is with me, and take it back. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. We're going to learn a valuable lesson about that. Laban came into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. When he had left Leah's tent, he came into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the teraphim, but put them into the camel's paddle sack and sat on them. Laban rummaged through the whole tent, but found nothing. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angered that I cannot rise up before you, for the way of women is upon me. Thus he searched, but did not find the teraphim. Then Jacob became angry. Now we have righteous anger getting in, in, in involved here. Jacob let him do all this, rummage through everything. 
Jacob got angry and said, and he took up his grievance with Laban. And Jacob spoke and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? When you rummaged through all my things, what did you find of all your household objects? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen and let them decide between the two of us. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your she-goats never miscarried, nor did I eat rams of your flock. That which was mangled I never brought you. I myself would bear the loss. From me you would exact it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. This is how I was. By day scorching heat consumed me, and frost by night. My sleep drifted from my eyes. This is, this is my 20 years in your household. I serve you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you change my wage a hundred times. Had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the dread of Isaac been with me, you would surely have now sent me away empty-handed. God saw my wretchedness and the toil of my hands, so he admonished you last night. Then Laban spoke up and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. Yet to my daughters, what could I do to them this day, or to the children whom they have borne? So now come, let us make a covenant, I and you, and he, and, and he shall be a witness between me and you. Laban's a piece of work. I can't imagine having such a father-in-law. You work for this guy for 20 years to earn everything. He's already made a deal. And then he turned around and said, everything you see before you, the, the wives, the children, all the flock, it's, it belongs to me. Wow. And, hey, let's make a covenant. Goodness. So, then Jacob took a stone and raised it as a monument. There's an interesting story about that we'll get to in a second. And Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. So they took stones and made a mound, and they ate there on the mound. And Laban called it Jagar Sadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban declared, this mound is a witness between me and you today. Therefore he called the name Galid. And as for the Mizpah, because he said, May Adonai keep watch between me and you when you are out of each other's sight. If you will ill-treat my daughters, or if you will marry wives in addition to my daughters, though no man may be among us, but see, God is a witness between me and you. And Laban said to Jacob, Here is this mound, and here is the mountain which I cast between me and you. This mound shall be witness, and the monument shall be witness, that I may not cross over to you past this mound, nor may you cross over to me past this mound and this monument for evil. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, judge between us and the God of their father. And Jacob swore by the dread, he swore by the dread of his father Isaac, which is interesting. He swore by the dread, <coughs> pardon me, of his father Isaac. Then Jacob slaughtered for a feast on the mountain and summoned his kinsmen to break bread. And they broke bread and spent a night on the mountain. By the way, notice that Laban said, you're not allowed to marry any other women except for the, my daughters that you've married. He's acknowledging that all four were, in fact, his daughters. Because at this time, of course, he's also married to Zilpah and Bilhah. I want to begin uh, looking at a, a, the initial insight to uh, the Midrash Rabbah. 
to, um, to our portion here. An interesting midrash to this opening statement where Hashem said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your native land, and I will be with you. Chapter 31 and verse 3. Now, Amet had a really great insight about the land of Israel. Uh, there are varying schools of thought. Some say that you should go to the Eretz Israel, etc., etc. I can tell you right now that um, unless it's a unique circumstance and you happen to have a miracle, if you believe in Yeshua, I don't care if you're born Jewish and your great-great-great-granddaddy was the Vilna Gaon and, and uh, your great-great-grandfather uh, on the other side was a student of Rambam and was his right-hand man, if you believe in Messiah Yeshua, forget it. You can't go to the Holy Land. And if you lie to get in, well, then you're a liar and a cheat and uh, hello. Right? Oh, I didn't get an amen on that. I better get an amen on that. If I lie to get into the Holy Land, do you believe in Yeshua? Well, I mean, um, well, um, uh, well, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, that's, called, that's called lying, right? How many of you know if you lie when you enter in a contract that the contract's void? How many of you know that sometimes, in certain instances, you can go to jail for that? How many of you know when you ever, you ever sign a mortgage or ever, any kind of contract, and it, it, there's a little paragraph that says, by the way, if you're lying in this application, uh, what you going to do, what you going to do when they come for you? You ever, you ever had that little paragraph? <laughs> we sign that all the time, right, because we're supposed to be truthful and honest about everything we put in the, in the application. And if we found to be fraudulent, then bad things can happen to us, civil penny, penalties, maybe criminal penalties. But a lot of people don't think anything about that at all when they sign the contract with God. So, you know, if you can be open and honest, standing in front of the uh, Aliyah agent and say, I am, uh, you're Jewish, yes I am, okay, I, and I believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Oh, great, enter in my great and faithful servant. Now, if you can do that, more power to you. It ain't going to happen, though. It ain't time yet. That's why it's not going to happen. Because the exile is not over yet. Someone says, are your, are your conversions good for Aliyah? The Aliyah thing in Israel, listen to me, loud and clear. I don't want to get off on this topic, but just hear me out. It's all political. It's politics. It's not religious at all. It is not religious at all. It is not religious at all. Let me say it again. It's not religious at all. It's all political. It's all political, politics. What do you mean, Rabbi? What do you mean it's politics? You can be a homosexual and a Jew and make Aliyah. That's how you know it's not religious. So when you say, are your conversions recognized by the state of Israel, my reply is, you can be homosexual and a Jew and make Aliyah. So why would I want them to recognize my conversions? Hello? Why do I want, why do I want that stamp? I feel good about it? No, I'm not. But you have to understand, we're all going to end up in Israel eventually. We're all going to end up in Israel eventually. Right now, that's not our mission. 
our mission is to seek out those holy sparks, and by, by, they're not there. They're out here. That's our mission, to find the holy sparks. You know, Hashem sent us out here. Even the sages agree, you understand, the sages agree that we're in exile to gather in the holy sparks. The problem is, is that right now, well, for, I would say probably for the last at least 1,500 years, Judaism has not been practicing its mission. Now, you need to think about that for a second. The sages say that we're in exile to bring the sparks in. That's to bring the Gentiles in, not the Jews. He didn't send us into exile to go find the Jews. Think that through for a second. He sent us into the nations, what? To gather in the nations and to make them Jews, not the Messianic Gentiles, about bringing them into the covenant. Now, for the last 1,500 years, we haven't been doing that. We've been focused on our own communities and, and, and hoping and praying that the Messiah will come and lead us back to the Holy Land. But God is saying, I sent you out here for a reason. And it's only when the nations start coming in that the Mashiach will eventually come. But it says in the Midrash Shabbat, And Adonai said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, to your native land. The Midrash says, it is written, I have cried out to you, Adonai. I have said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Psalm 142.6. The Midrash disagrees, or excuse me, digresses, Slika, to examine the verse description of Eretz Israel as the land of the living. It says, but is, is not the land of the living only Tyre, or Tyree rather, and the like, and there is plenty, and there are things, uh, there are things are inexpensive. And yet you say my portion is the land of the living with respect to Eretz Israel. This is interesting because it's saying that in other lands outside of Israel, it's, it's easier to live. There's more abundance. It says right here, it's interesting that we're talking about the ancient Midrash says that things in the land of Tyre are inexpensive. You know, uh, the cost of living, I don't know what the exact cost of living is in Israel right now in terms of comparatively speaking to our cost of living. But I would just venture to guess that it's three to four times as expensive. Now, it's not trying to be discouraging. Please don't misunderstand. But I want to put a little reality check. Because everybody says, I want to go live in Jerusalem. Right? Okay, great. That's fine. You, you know how much a, a Cracker Jack apartment would cost you? A Cracker, cracker Jack apartment would cost you in Jerusalem right now? You know, where you, when you're walking, when you and your wife got to do this to go to the bathroom? Excuse me, honey. Pardon me. Right? About probably low end half a mil. More closer to a million. That's dollars, not pesos. <laughs> it's that expensive or more in Tel Aviv. And if you want an inexpensive apartment, you've got to go someplace like, uh, you'd have to go up to Tiberias, which, you know, that's great, but there's, if you want to, there's no work up there. It's, it's, I mean, there is, but not, not like there is in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. That's why it's less expensive up there, because it's more of a resort community. But you can get something there. If you can get a night, you can get a, you can get a good, you know, 1,000 square foot apartment for probably 150, 200. All of a sudden, y'all's plans change. Right now, y'all's plans change. <laughs> 
Then you got to learn how to speak Hebrew. Oh, you'll go Opon and all that, sure. But you got to learn how to speak the language. You got to get a job. You know, I'm just saying it's not easy. People are like, I just want to move to Israel. Okay. But, but, and, and, then, and then I ask you something and do what? And do what? I don't know. Maybe you're called to, to live there. Well, then you got to get in, but you got to get in under the right circumstances. You got to get in, being honest, Boy Scout, faithfully honest. You can't sneak through under the wire. You say, oh, I believe in, I don't believe you should be, uh, I don't believe that we should have illegal uh, immigrants in the United States. Well, don't be an illegal immigrant over there either. Don't lie on your application to get in there. That's called illegal immigration. You know that, right? If you lie on your application to come to the United States, that's, you're, you're still an illegal. But I got a visa, but you lied, right? Yeah, but you're illegal. Okay. Everybody's like, man, I was watching this guy on, on Facebook, and he was talking about don't ask, don't tell, and I was about to do that. So it's easy. So, so it's interesting because it's saying here it's inexpensive in other places. So what does it mean that the land of Israel is the land of the living? What does that mean exactly? It says rather the land of the living connotes the land whose dead will be revived first in the days of the Mashiach. The resurrection will occur first in Israel, and then it'll happen in the rest of the land. Now, and and. There's many, many, many commentators who say that everybody who's righteous, who's a part of the resurrection, will ultimately be revived in Israel. That Hashem will supernaturally tunnel, as, as many pe people put it, our bodies to the land of Israel. In other words, that not only will we uh, live in Israel one day in the Alam Haba, but we'll actually be resurrected there. You say, well, I thought I was going to be ready. I'm, I'm, most likely, unless something changes, I'll probably be buried down the street. Most likely. I could go to the National Veterans Cemetery, but that's too far away, and y'all wouldn't come see me. <laughs> and I get lonely. <laughs> oh, no, 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 don't be doing that. You want your prayers answered. <laughs> I'll probably just go down the street, you know. Y'all can wave at me when I'll come to shul. Hey. And uh, anyway, but I'm not going to be resurrected in Saginaw. Bezrat Hashem will be re resurrected somewhere in Israel. I don't care where. Proof of the Torah. It's interesting, it says here in verse 7, Yet your father changed my wage a hundred times. This verse is a subtle proof of the oral Torah. Because we only hear of two instances in the Torah where Laban changed the rules on Jacob. And yet Jacob testifies this happened a hundred times. But the Torah never tells us anything about the hundred times. But the oral Torah gives us more details about it. Why? Because as Ram Bond said, it is often the case that the Torah does not give us all the details of a particular matter. 
Now, we read, kind of skipping around a little bit, but I want to share this. We read that, that Rachel stole the household gods, as it were. First of all, Laban was, he's, he's referred to, I think Rabbi Monk has the actual title, if I remember correctly. Um, yes, he was an Av Haramaim. An Av Haramaim. Notice how that sounds similar to Harachaman. Av Haramaim, which means literally a father of sorcery. You know, Harachaman is compassion, right? But compassion misguided can be sorcery. When you have compassion on someone to the extent that you're willing to assist them to lead an ungodly life or that you don't really want to talk to them about Hashem because you have such compassion on them. You have such compassion on them. You want to agree with their false narrative because, you know, you don't want to create any waves because you have such compassion. It's really sorcery. It's called manipulation. You're just really trying to manipulate a relationship. But compassion is using wisdom and using kindness, helping somebody when maybe they don't want to hear what you have to say. Laban was a master of sorcery. What did Laban, well, we know he did literal sorcery, but we also know that Laban, he just ran his mouth all the time. You couldn't trust a thing he said. I mean, it was so bad that before Jacob even married Rachel, which ended up being Leah, he made, a, he was, he was made, made him initial on all the fine print. And then still Laban tricked him. So he was a father of sorcery and come to find out that his grandson was a little known figure named Balaam. Remember Balaam and the donkey? So Rachel stole these gods. Now why did Rachel steal the gods? Is because Rachel believed in, in them? God forbid. She did not. But on the surface level, Rachel took those those household gods, because she didn't want her father to use sorcery to find out where they were going. That's, that's on the surface level. But remember how we've been talking about Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah and how they are so interested in the mission. And this little insight here from Rabbeinu Hananel gives us a further insight into Rachel. Rachel and Leah were out there talking to um, their husband out in the field, and they said, listen, our father has even taken our money. You know, women are supposed to be sent off with a dowry. And the father, in this case, took that money and he spent it at the casino, the blue buffalo. And so they said, look, we have nothing. And so the, the girls knew that their father was a wretched person. But I want you to listen to the heart of Rachel because it says Rachel stole the teraphim in order to force her father to become a penitent, to make teshuva, to see and realize that a God which allows itself to be stolen surely could not be something of sustenance. How could a God who can't even take care of himself take care of others? Rachel stole the gods on the surface so that he wouldn't use them to find out where they where they were going, but he said she, she stole them because, you know, you're, Father, you're a, you're, a, you're a terrible father, but I want you to come into the covenant. I love you because you're a human being. Rachel's love was expressed there. And remember, Rachel's all about the mission, and their mission 
is, you can say, well, the mission is Torah. The mission is the covenant of God. That's right. But what was Abraham's commission of the mission? And that was to bring other people into the covenant. So Rachel was all about bringing people into the covenant. And as an aside, I want to say that we have to be guarded because what I'm about to say has happened to the Jewish world at large. And that is that we have to be guarded that we don't become so deep into the covenant that we look at somebody who's so far away and we don't even want to try because they have so far to go. Which, by the way, is arrogant. But what do I mean by that exactly? Let me break that down for you. Because this is, as I said, this happened to the Jewish world. The Torah culture, the Jewish culture, the Jewish world is so starkly different than the culture of the world. This is why when the Apostle Paul was writing at Colossians and he was talking to them and he said, you know, uh, not to go back to the ways of the world. And every single Christian pastor interprets that to mean don't go back to your Torah life. And yet he's talking to guys and gals who were formerly Gentile, number one. So they didn't have a Torah life before that. But, but moreover, is the Torah life the way of the world? I mean, really? You know, I mean, I mean you know, we're a good-sized congregation as Orthodox congregations go, but there's not, we have empty chairs here. So that means that this is not the way of the world. If this is the way of the world, we'd be at 5,000 or 10,000 building mega place. Because everybody comes. Because um, there was something about that. Let's see, what was it? The narrow is the way, but broad, and many find it. Or was it the other way around? I forget what it was. Was it many find the narrow, or is it many find the broad? Yeah, broad. it was broad. So, <laughs> so, but we could get so deep into this, you know, that we could look at somebody who, they got a pork chop hanging out of their mouth, they're wearing Daisy Dukes, and it's a dude, and... <laughs> You know, and we look at them and say, there's no way I'm going to get them to light candles or eat kosher or wear a seat seat. There's just no way, man. I'm not, I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to just, let me just be in my world and then be in their world. I'm telling you, it happens. But then God has to pick us up. Say, can you stand up for a second? Yes, Hashem. Okay. Face me. Yes. <laughs> You were wearing the Daisy Dukes, and you were eating non-kosher. And you were doing everything bad, just like that person. And somebody came for you. And as Rebetzin Ungris talks about, and Shoshana has mentioned, that we think that we've got to go in and get somebody and make them super Jew. But really, all we need to do is invite people to keep a mitzvah. Just one. Why? Because one mitzvah leads to another. You tell somebody, you want a chip? How many of them get one chip and that's it? You want a potato chip? They reach their hand and they get one, one ruffles. <laughs> want a chip? Yeah. They get a chip, eat it. You want another chip? No, I'm done. I'm good. <laughs> no, you want, you want a chip? They have a chip. They got to taste it, make sure it tastes good. Oh, they say, yeah, you want another one? They get a handful of them chips. And you're like, dude, I'm never going to offer you a chip again. 
So when you offer somebody a mitzvah, they take a taste of it, they find out how wonderful it is, they want to know another mitzvah. And by the way, that process could take days, it could take weeks, it could take months, it could possibly take years. And so we have to have, we have to ask Hashem, I should say, that to give us a little bit of grace. Rachel's whole purpose in stealing the teraphim was to wean, it says here, and this is, by the way, I'm quoting from Rabbeinu Bakya. I should have mentioned that earlier. This is Rabbeinu Bakya. Rachel's whole purpose in stealing the teraphim was to wean her father from the practice of idolatry. That was really her purpose. That's the heart of Rachel. She was, she was all about the mission, and Jacob was about the mission. Jacob wanted to go back to the Holy Land because he realized that God was not able to um, appear to him in an idolatrous world. The Ruach HaKodesh is not willing to just hang out with us in our idolatry. Now there's a humor, somewhat of a humorous insight I want to I say here before I move on to the next thing about Rachel and, and these um, gods that she, she took. Laban said, it's in my power. It's in my power to do you harm. So Rabbi Monk writes, the ungodly exalt and glorify themselves in evil, which is in their power to commit. They, re they renou renounce it only when forced to do so by the threats of their gods. Rashi explains that Laban said, I have the power to harm you. I have the power to harm all of you, he said, in fact. So Jacob replied to him and said, You say that you have the strength to kill me? Come here then with your troops and try to lift this block of stone. They could not do it. Then Jacob came forward and took that stone and raised it up as a monument, verse 45. And it says, he had removed it as one removes the stopper of a bottle. So Jacob had this enormous strength, and he told the guys, like, you, you think you can take me? Come over here and move this stone. And all these guys, they couldn't even lift it. He goes over and he just picks it up, troop, like that. And now all of a sudden, Laban wants to cut a treaty. Like, you know what, let's, let's make a treaty. Now, Jacob had made a, a big mistake, and this has happened at least, at least a couple of times in Scripture, and it's something that we have to be very careful of. There, your words have power. Now, we know that already. That's not anything necessarily profound, but we forget it all the time. We, we very often forget the fundamentals, which is why we have to come back to them so often. This is, if you read, well, the book that Batya is going through the... Um, path of the just uh, that I that's the whole idea of the path of the just is that these are the fundamentals these are things that we all think that we know and we all should know and in fact most of the time we do know but yet it's the fundamentals that we often forget like loving people such a fundamental thing but yet we forget it all the time we get so wrapped up in what we're doing and there's not necessarily anything wrong with getting wrapped up in trying to learn how to live for God, but sometimes we do that to the exclusion of loving people. So in this case, we know that our words have power. We know that we should guard our tongue. We know we shouldn't say things. 
and yet we often forget. So it says, with whomever you find your gods, Jacob said, he shall not live. He did not know. For whatever reason, Rachel did not tell him that she was taking the gods. And probably the reason, I would imagine, I'm guessing, that Rachel didn't tell her husband that she was taking the gods is because Jacob probably would have said, don't do that. And Jacob, so Rachel thought it would be better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. But it said that because he said this, Rachel died on the journey. Now later, we learned that the brothers said the same thing about Benjamin. They said, with whomever you find your silver goblet, that, that one will die. Well, Benjamin didn't die, but why? Because Benjamin didn't steal it. It was placed in his bag, but he didn't actually steal it. In this case, Rachel did, in fact, take them. So therefore, she died. And I wonder about Rachel. Talking about the mission, I wonder if Rachel, you know, at dinner one night, maybe a few days later, Kira said, husband, yes, my wife, I just wanted to say, you remember how you said anybody that had the gods would die? Yeah. That was me. Or... Or did Rachel not say anything and just know that she was willing to give her life if it meant that they, their lives would be spared and that her father might make teshuva? In other words, Rachel was willing to live that, lay her life down at some point for the sake of the mission. It's interesting because juxtaposed to this, we have uh, Jacob who says he swears by the dread of Isaac. And I just got through saying that Rachel was willing to lay her life down for the mission, and we're going to learn about what the dread of Isaac is. So it says, when a righteous man pronounces a curse, the Hasatan curse be he, grabs hold of it, keeps it until the time of danger is ripe, and then does evil with it, even if the words were spoken by mistake or without realizing what one was saying. The dread of Isaac, I mentioned that just a second ago. The dread, the dread of Isaac, it says here the same term is used in verse 53. While love of God and men characterize Abraham's form of worship, which is the midat of hesed, Isaac's is characterized by an awe of God, which was manifest in his absolute obedience to the divine command when he laid down his life on the altar as the akidah. And this is what Rachel was doing when she took those gods. She says, you know, I, I took them, and Rachel didn't know that her, her husband was going to curse her. Jacob didn't mean to curse her. But it's interesting to me because Rachel didn't say anything. How do I know she didn't say anything? Because we probably would have read where they might have gone to Hashem and asked for a reverse the curse. But Rachel just felt like she needed to give her life for this mission. And I just, we've talked the last two or three weeks about the whole family and the, the wives and the whole dynamic there. And it's just interesting to me that Leah, maybe, maybe Rachel, maybe it's possible. I'm just going to throw this out there. She knew that her sister Leah wasn't loved. And she, but she knew that Leah was the more righteous and then Rachel got all the love. You know, there's a diagram 
I wasn't going to actually mention it because I didn't think it would be relevant, but it's interesting. There was a, two diagrams of the tent because the way the scripture says he went into Rachel's tent, then he went into Leah's tent, then he went back into Rachel's tent. So the sages brought down what the tent structure looked like. And so there was four tents, and they're all connected. You can imagine like a big rectangle. And so you had Zilpah and Bilhah, which were connected. And then Zilpah and Bilhah were connected to Leah. And then Leah's was connected to Rachel, and Rachel had the door going in and out. That was one of the, there's one of two. The other one says that Leah had an outdoor as well. But the idea was that if you wanted to, if, he wanted, if Jacob needed to get to the other wives, he had to go through Rachel's tent first. And it's because Rachel was considered the prime wife. And whether or not Leah had an outdoor uh, exit or not, uh, it's kind of the same thing. But the other two wives, Zilpah and Bilhah, definitely did not, according to the diagram. So you look at that diagram and you just realize Rachel says, look, I'm the favored one here. And Leah is actually the more righteous than me. So maybe Rachel's idea was, I'm not going to say anything, because ultimately, maybe in order to bring myself up to the level where Leah is, I need to be that one who's willing to be the occupant. Meaning that sometimes we have to be willing to lay down our life. Not that God is literally going to take our life, but we just have to be willing to give up everything. Hashem, it's all about you. Leah ended up going and being buried in the, with the patriarchs and the matriarchs in Machpelah. But Rachel wasn't. She was left in a solitary tomb on the side of the road leading to Bethlehem. And that seems kind of sad, doesn't it? She's all by herself. I mentioned I was kind of being silly about being out there all by myself, you know. Uh, but, well, I wouldn't be all by myself because my wife would be with me and all that. But still, uh, but, but I was kind of being silly about that. But really, Rachel was buried there, the sages bring down, because she was given the mitzvah of interceding for her children when they left for Babylon. Because they had to pass by Rachel's tomb. This is what it means that she wept for her children and God heard her tears and said that because of your tears, they will come back. But it's that selflessness. One final thing as we conclude today about selflessness. Who, who could have had, talk about selfless, because we're getting, like I said, based on what Amet was saying earlier, we're getting in that time frame where we're about to start talking about baseless hatred and how we can overcome that. Who would have had more right to hate his brothers than Joseph? There's a lot of turmoil right now in our country because of things that our great-grandparents did. Stop and think about that for a second. We're holding grudges. And by the way, some of those grudges are actually false narratives in and of themselves, but I'm not going to get into that. Y'all know me. I know history. And history that you've been told is not the history that's reality. But presuming that it's true, which it's not, but, <laughs> but presuming that it's true, we're talking about holding a grudge for something our great Grandparents, in some cases, great-great-grandparents did. That's stupid. Talk about the Hatfield and McCoys. I mean, my goodness. But we look into Torah and we think, who had the biggest grudge? Who had the biggest grudge? Sold into slavery. Who had the biggest grudge? Joseph. 
Talk about revenge. Talk about wanting to make things right. Joseph could, oh man, Joseph could have stood right there in the middle of, middle of Egypt when his brother showed up. I'm going to get you, boy. I'm going to get you. But is that what he did? Mm-mm. No, it's what he said. He said, Jacob spoke words and had a direct and irrevocable effect like that of an angel. When Joseph rejoined his father, why did he not stay with him? Instead, in keeping his distance and coming only when his father called. Why did he do that? He's been away from his father all these years. Why did he bring his dad into the castle, into the palace? Here's why. It was because Joseph feared questions about the circumstances of how he ended up in Egypt. He, would have, he was fearing that he would have been obligated to recount to his father exactly how his brothers treated him and sold him into slavery that might have provoked his father into cursing his brothers. So Joseph remembered the effect that this had had on his mother. And so therefore he said to himself, I'm not going to spend much time around Abba because my, I don't want him to say, hey, by the way, how did you get to Egypt? Well, but see, it's the reverse of what the Yetzirah, the Yetzirah wants to say that he should say, yeah, this is what they did. So curse him, dad, and make me the big one. Curse him, dad, and make me, let me. But Joseph says, I'm not going to talk about it. Because it's all from God anyway. Ain't old Milvano. Because it's just so happened that Joseph was here and God needed to get him here in order to do something great over here that he couldn't do over here. So the only way to get him from point A to point B, so because he, he couldn't accomplish his mission here, he could only accomplish it here, was to sell him into slavery. That's the only way he could get him from point A to point B. And all that hardship and all that pain and all that suffering and all that abuse was all that he could fulfill the, the mission that God had sent him on. And, and Joseph realized this is all from Hashem anyway. So there's really nothing to tell. In these last three weeks, I think the biggest thing that I've taken away is just how much we need to be about the mission that God has put into our life. What is, the, what is our specific role in the mission that Hashem has doing worldwide what's our role in it and we need to focus on that mission and and ask Hashem to help us to accomplish it to the very best of our ability and be all about it Baruch Abba Hashem Adonai